You are listening to the Sermons Podcast of First Baptist Church, Mount Washington. I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 1 today. Romans chapter 1, we've been working uh, through this chapter verse by verse uh, as best we can. And verses 1 through 17, we've looked at kind of an introduction And now we get uh, into the message, beginning the heart of the message of the letter. This first section of Romans uh, here, beginning in verse 18 of chapter 1, goes all the way through at least the end of chapter 3, uh, verse 20. And uh, it's explaining to us why the gospel is uh, so necessary. And uh, the reason is it's because of the lostness of mankind. And so that's what Paul begins to uh, show us here in uh, verse 18, the necessity of, of the gospel. Romans 1, verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Let's pray together. Father, we ask for your help now. We know that your truth is spiritually discerned by the Holy Spirit. And so, Holy Spirit, please work in our hearts and lives, granting us understanding, opening our eyes, shaping, changing our hearts and lives. And I pray that you would use me as your servant today. I pray that you would increase and I would decrease and your word would go forth. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. There is nothing that keeps people away from Christ more than their inability to see their need for Him. Jesus said in Mark 2.17, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Now, Jesus did not mean by that that Some are righteous and they don't need a Savior. That's not what he was saying at all. He was saying that some think that they are righteous. And in that condition, a person will never come to Christ because they don't think they need Him. And so Paul's first task here in laying out the gospel to us is to show us why we need it. If you turn over a couple of pages to Romans chapter 3 you will see Paul's thinking fleshed out for us of where we're going to get to. Uh, He begins in chapter 1, verse 18, but if you look at chapter 3, verse 
10, towards the conclusion of the chapter, he says, As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. And then at the very end of that passage, down in verse 19, he says, So that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. So this is what he's laying out for us in verses eight, eight, verse 18 here in chapter 1 all the way to, toward the end of chapter 3. Paul is establishing the fact that every single human being stands in need of the gospel. Last week we talked about verse 17, chapter 1, how the gospel reveals the righteousness of God. And the reason the righteousness of God is needed is because it is so pervasively lacking in our lives. He does not say that you need the gospel because you've been leading an unsuccessful life. He does not say that you need the gospel because you have been lonely or you, uh, so you can find the right spouse or whatever. He does not say that you need the gospel because you've been feeling insecure and and down. Paul emphatically states that you need the gospel because you need the righteousness of God to save you from the coming wrath of God. And so verse by verse, thought by thought, Paul lays out this case uh, indicting every human uh, being and exhorting them to trust Christ. Simply put, to receive salvation is to first understand what you are being saved from. Why you need saving. And Paul lays that out for us. We notice first God's wrath revealed. His wrath revealed. Verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Now you remember verse 17 he says in the gospel the righteousness of God is revealed. That righteousness is given to us as a gift upon our faith in Jesus. But no sooner that he mentioned this, in the very next verse, he mentions another revelation, and that is the wrath of God is revealed. The word wrath means uh, to grow ripe for something. It portrays uh, the wrath of God is something that uh, builds up over a long period of time, like the water that is collecting behind a dam. God's wrath is his hatred of human sin. It is his rejection of all that is holy or unholy, that is against his character, against his word. It is his opposition to everything that is unlike him. And dishonors him. And Paul says here that it is building up and one day will result in the eternal condemnation of all of those who are unsaved. Romans chapter 2 verse 5, he says, Because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. So there's a future wrath that is coming. But notice here, there is also a present manifestation of that wrath. For the wrath of God, he says in verse 18, is being revealed. 
The righteousness of God, verse 17, is being revealed in the proclamation of the gospel, but at the very same time, the wrath of God is being revealed in society. Now, Paul will explain this more fully in verse 24 and following our text for next week. He describes the downward inclination of those who reject God, and therefore they're being abandoned by God. As a part of his wrath, they're being given over to evil, and it leads to every kind of perversion. Uh, it ends in human depravity where people are calling good evil and evil good, and they spiral downward further and further away from God. And God's judgment is to let them plunge into the depths of their own depravity, storing up wrath for themselves on the day of wrath. Notice his wrath, it says, is revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. I think those are general terms. Ungodliness means, uh, in a simple way, against God, godlessness. And unrighteousness is referring more to uh, against men or our relationships. It literally means wickedness. And you see that in the text. You have, in verses 18 through 24, largely a rejection of God, but then picking it up in verse 24, it's followed by sinfulness in relationships. And and the root of it is ungodliness, he says, godlessness, the rejection of God. It is an attempt to get rid of God. You, you, You want to get rid of Him since... Uh, that is impossible. The determin- it's a determination to live as though you have done so. Paul says uh, in Romans 3, verse 18, there is no fear of God before their eyes. That is someone who is pushing down God. I think the driving point here for us in verse 18 is that God is not indifferent towards sin or sinners. He is not passive over what is going on in the world. There is a righteous indignation that rises in him against ungodliness and wickedness, unrighteousness. And if that were not true, then God would not be God. He would not be holy and right himself. God is not indifferent toward sin or sinners. And he is not indifferent toward your sin. You are not the exception. I am not the exception. No matter how nice of a person that you are or, or moral, there is no one righteous, he, he says, and you need righteousness more than you think. There's a present revelation of wrath and a future wrath which makes the gospel message so urgent today. It's why every unconverted person desperately needs to believe the gospel of Jesus Christ right now without delay. Notice what triggers God's wrath here. He has in mind, Paul does, one particular sin. It is a universal sin that is, I think, committed by every person A single sin that provokes God's wrath against the whole human race. And it is the sin of suppressing the truth. For the wrath of God, verse 18, is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. 
The word means to hold back or to hinder. We might think of like a giant uh, spring. I guess giant is relevant, but, or, or, yeah, but a coil that you're trying to push it down with all of your, your strength to compress it, to push it down. And while you are pushing down, it is pushing, it is pushing back. It is resisting your strength and sinking to, to spring back. But, but you keep resisting it. This is what the picture he says. By their unrighteousness, they are suppressing the truth. It's not just that they do wrong, though they know better. It is that they are making a conscious decision to do this for themselves, to live for themselves rather than God and others. Therefore, they deliberately stifle any truth that challenges their self-centeredness, that challenges their will, their thoughts, their sinful way of life. The sinful humanity prefers the wickedness of sin rather than the righteousness of God. And they make every effort to suppress that truth. Aldous Huxley was one of the world's leading atheists in the 20th century. He spent nearly his whole life opposing the Bible, teaching that life was without meaning. Near the end of his life, he acknowledged that his atheism was fueled by a desire to be liberated from a certain system of morality. He wrote this. He said, we objected to the biblical morality because it interfered with our sexual freedom. You understand what he's saying? He's saying, I love my sin too much to believe in God. It's exactly what Paul is saying here. By their unrighteousness, they suppress the truth. What truth are they suppressing? Verse 19 answers it. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. What truth are they suppressing? They are suppressing the truth about God. This is not referring, I think, to the truth of God that we learn through the Bible, though we definitely suppress that too. Paul is speaking of the truth known about God apart from the Bible. He's speaking just of a knowledge of God that God has shown the world. This means that the knowledge of God Himself is not obscure. It is not hidden from people. God is not hiding. It's not for those who, uh, after tedious searching and going through all of the evidence that they're able to finally discover God. That's not the picture at all. The truth of God, Paul says, is plain. It's clear. Uh, Ferguson explains it well. God has made His revelation plain to us in everything that He has made, and that revelation has found its mark among us and in our consciousness. So that Paul's position is there's no single human being surrounded and invaded by that revelation who can ever say that God did not make Himself clear to me. No, God has made himself clear. If you look at the passage closely, notice the strong verbs that Paul uses to communicate this act of suppression. Verse 21, it says, they did not honor God. Verse 23, they exchanged the glory of God for images. Verse 25, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. 
And in verse 25 again, they worship and serve the creature rather than the creator. All of those verbs are verbs of the will. This has nothing to do with some kind of lack of evidence or supposed ignorance of God. No, people do not know God simply because they do not want to know God. It is a matter of the will. They suppress the truth about Him. It was Augustine who once said that our hearts are inevitably restless until they find their rest in God. Suppression is hard work. It's a labor. And it's becoming even harder work as you see the devastation of this. You think about millions of people in our world that, that are medicated because uh, some because of real chemical imbalances, but many because they, they cannot find peace, having exhausted themselves in suppressing the truth about God. Others giving themselves over to all kinds of sexual immorality and immoral relationships, which leads to even more brokenness and emptiness. Suppressing the truth about God is hard, costly work. This is even more indicting when we read that the truth about God, Paul says, is clearly perceived. That's what he says in verse 19, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them, verse 20, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. A knowledge of God, in other words, has not just been planted in our conscious, but it has been clearly perceived from creation. That's what he says, in the things that have been made. Every second, God is revealing himself all over this planet. He's revealing himself in the things that have been made so that his testimony is plain to all. Inevitably, the question comes up in this passage, well, what, about the, what about the poor, innocent person in Africa who has never heard of Christ? The, the implication behind this question, of course, is that the innocent uh, person, the innocent native, is, is going to be sent to hell for doing something he's never had the opportunity to do, namely uh, believe on Jesus and be saved. But, but I want you to know that question is flawed from the very beginning. The point Paul is making in this text is that there are no innocent people in this world. No one is innocent. And I agree, God is not going to punish someone for rejecting somebody they've never heard of. But Paul's point here is that they are destined for wrath, for the rejection of the one that has been revealed to them. Every human being knows of God and clearly perceives God, but he is suppressing that truth. And for that reason, every person apart from Christ is facing the wrath of God. Paul teaches that the invisible God, his attributes can be clearly seen through the things that have been made. He speaks there of his eternal power and his divine nature. He's talking about the general or natural revelation of God. That's a term that theologians will use. If you remember the beautiful Psalm, Psalm 19, 
It goes like this, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There's no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. That's what Paul is saying here in Romans 1. And then that psalm goes on to talk about the Word of God. The Word of God is the special revelation of God. So we have the general revelation of God from creation that testifies to God. And we have the special revelation that, that specifically talks about God's plan of redemption, the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. Paul will later say, Romans 10 17, faith comes from hearing and hearing through the Word of Christ. And so here is the point. Now, general or natural revelation of God is not enough to save a person. You're not going to be saved by simply going out and staring at the sky or the stars. Uh, we are saved only through faith in Jesus Christ. But general revelation is not enough to save a person. But understand, according to Paul, it is enough to condemn a person before God. Anyone can look at creation and conclude that it was made by and is controlled by a creator who possesses power beyond human comprehension. All of it, every mountain, every valley, every tree, every flower, every sunrise, every sunset, every raindrop, every leaf, every square inch of this universe points us to the existence of God and his eternal power. Clearly perceived. Notice the result of this at the end of verse 20. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. No one will be able to stand before God someday and say, you know, I didn't know you were there. I, I had no idea. If you just revealed yourself a little bit more... And maybe I would have known, and, and I would have believed that's not going to fly before God. Paul says everyone is without excuse concerning God's existence. No one gets an exemption in their accountability to God because he's clearly made himself known to all, and sinful humanity has suppressed that knowledge. Verse 21, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. They refused to do this. And the greater the suppression of the knowledge of God, I think the greater will be the wrath of God on that person. Because if, if Paul maintains here that, that the revelation of God in nature, just in nature alone, is fully adequate to condemn people who do not allow it to bring them to worship and serve the true God, how much more terrible and awful is the case of vast numbers of people in our country who not only have the beautiful natural revelation of God, but also have the Bible and the proclamation of the truths and churches in virtually every town and city across our land. Amen. If sinful humanity in places where there is 
no Bible and no churches and no gospel, if they're going to be condemned, what about those who have everything? Boyce expresses it well. If we reject what God tells us, we are a thousand times more guilty. The greatest wrath will be revealed for those who have heard the truth of the gospel but have rejected it. They are overwhelmingly without excuse. For how shall we escape if we ignore such a great salvation? When God is repeatedly suppressed, the picture here Paul paints for us is that life begins to spiral down into judgment. It deteriorates. Paul says in, over in chapter 2, verse 8, For those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. And it's not, again, not just in the final judgment, but it is through terrible consequences of sin in this life. And Paul begins to outline those for us in verse 21. The second part, through 23, is sinful humanity continues to suppress the truth about God. Notice what happens. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. It's only going to get worse from there, and we'll pick it up in verse 24 next week. But notice this passage. When a person rejects God, it begins to put them in a very dangerous place. It affects first their thinking, it says. It becomes futile. They become futile in their thinking. Their thinking, in other words, it becomes useless or worthless or vain. And in a sense, again, it's having rejected God, the knowledge of God, sinful humanity is, is left to its own mental devices. And oh, how many we hear that are so much, so brilliant and so smart and so intellectually high that they figured out that there is no God. But Paul says, no, this is futility of thinking, and it only gets worse. We begin to specul- have speculations about God, who He is, what He is like, Speculations not based on the Word of God, but in the futile mind of man. We begin to craft arguments in our own mind that He doesn't exist, and it leads to more and more futility, confusion, uh, worthless kind of thinking because they have forsaken God. It's a downward spiral. This summer I read a a book, and I would commend it to you, uh, called The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. It's written by a fellow named Carl Truman. It's a long read, I'll warn you, but a helpful book because it kind of gives some understanding of how we have arrived at the place we are in our culture today. The origins of the book uh, from the very beginning stem from a statement that we hear uh, sometimes nowadays uh, around, and, and the statement is this, I am a woman trapped in a man's body. Uh, Truman writes in in the introduction of the book, he says, My grandfather died in 1994, less than 30 years ago. 
And yet, had he ever heard that sentence uttered in his presence, I have little doubt that he would have burst out laughing and considered it a piece of incoherent gibberish. And yet today, it is a sentence that many in our society regard as not only meaningful, but so significant that to deny it or question it in some way is to reveal oneself as stupid, immoral, or subject to yet another irrational phobia. How did we end up here? And Truman shows us in his book how we got here kind of culturally and philosophically. But the Apostle Paul explains it very well. We've rejected God, and notice, they've become futile in their thinking. When one rejects God, it has a devastating effect on one's rational abilities. And we're seeing that today on many fronts in our culture. A second result is a darkened heart. Notice they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. The word foolish there, so the word moros, comes from a word that we get our English word moron. That's not meant to be derogatory in any way, just explanatory. But Paul is saying here that these God suppressors have become moronic uh, in their thinking. In other words, incapable of having rational thoughts. And as a result, their hearts are further darkened, he says. Note this, rejecting the light always increases the darkness. If you reject the natural revelation of God in verses 18 to 20, then the next steps come more naturally. And this is a part of the judgment of God, this present judgment of God. God is saying, you, want, you don't want me. You don't, you don't want to, uh, to, to go this way. Then you want to go that way. Okay, I'm going to let you go that way. I'm going to give you over to yourself and your sin. It's as if God blows out the candle uh, and leaves them groping in the dark about who he is. And remember, this is not about the intellect. This is about the will. Hearts were darkened. More suppression. Which leads third to a, a corrupt lifestyle. Verse 22, claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. They became fools, incapable of sound thinking, incapable of thinking through the ultimate issues of life. Who am I? Where did I come from? Where, where am I going? What's life about? What, what's my purpose? How am I to live? What is death? What awaits me after death? Total futility and foolishness. Note again the downward spiral that we see here descending into the greater darkness from the revelation of God to, uh, to the rejection of the truth about God, verse 21. Uh, verse 21 and 22, to the insanity that results from this. Verse 23, the replacement of God with idols, idolatry. It's just going down. They, they've exchanged the truth about God who is majestic and self-existent and eternal, the eternal God of heaven and earth, and they begin to worship other things, animals, he says, 
creeping things. And not just that, but money, power, and sex. Idols that we put in the place of God. Idolatry is not man climbing upward with higher thoughts about God. (laughs) Idolatry is the total opposite. It is man spiraling downward into a lower state of debased thinking and depraved living. We'll see that, verse 24, next week. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and the descent is getting worse and worse and worse as they've suppressed God. Sigmund Freud is one such example of of someone who suppressed God. He claimed to have, uh, he claimed that we have invented God, uh, mankind's invented God to deal with things in nature that they find frightening. So we've created God and created origin. He explained that by inventing God that we kind of personalize or sacralize nature. So for example, we may be fearful of hurricanes, Uh, fearful of fires, tornadoes, viruses, uh, enemy armies that may come and and invade us. And so when we have human enemies, we can appease them. We can appease them with words or gifts, you know, to to stymie this. We, We learn how to get around our anger. But how do you negotiate with a hurricane, right? How do you persuade cancer from not coming to your house? Freud thought that we do that by personalizing nature. We invent a God who is over hurricanes or earthquakes or things, and then we try to appease that God. That's how religion is created. That's how God was was made. R.C. Sproul wrote this. He said, obviously, Freud was not on the Sea of Galilee with the disciples when the storm arose and threatened to capsize the boat they were in. You remember that story? The disciples woke up Jesus in the midst of that storm who was sleeping, by the way, in the boat. He says, and they said to him, don't you care that we perish? We're going to die. And you remember Jesus woke up and he spoke to the, the wind and the waves. He said, peace, be still. And in a moment, in an instant, they were still. And the most powerful part of that story to me is what happens next because all of a sudden the disciples were terrified. They were scared during the storm. They thought they were perishing and going to die. But when Jesus stood up and did that, they recognized that God was in the boat with them. And they were terrified. Who is this that even the winds and waves obey him? This is where somebody like Freud misses the point. Because if people are going to invent a religion to protect them from the fear of nature why would they invent a god who was more terrifying than nature here in romans paul introduces us to this god a god who is all-powerful sovereign holy a god who has every right to be angry over our sin and suppressing of him. A glorious God who has revealed himself so clearly that we are without excuse. A God who is worthy of our worship and our gratitude. 
And did I mention this? This holy, righteous, wrathful God. He also went to the cross for you. He took your place for your sin and died for you so that you could be saved from this wrath. Why would you not run to him in faith, submitting your life to him today? Heavenly Father, we thank you for you have not left us in the dark, groping about, trying to figure out who you are and how we can appease you, or you have showed us. You have revealed yourself to us, and you have re revealed yourself to us the most through your Son, Jesus Christ. We thank you today for Jesus. I pray that all who are in the hearing of this voice, that, of, of my voice today, that they would hear this good news of the gospel. That yes, we are sinners. Yes, we've all suppressed you. But you have made a way for us to be saved. May we look to Jesus today. May we surrender ourselves to him Help us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together as we sing. Thanks for listening to this podcast. I'm Pastor Jason Clark. And if you don't have a church home, I want to personally invite you to First Baptist Mount Washington. We're striving to be word-centered, gospel-focused, and community-minded. Learn more about our church and our meeting times from our website, fbcmw.org.